Carroll bringing it forward. Thompson's making the run. Carroll hangs on to it though. Still Davy Carroll. Could go all the way here. Oh, what a goal! I'm Phil Catchpole and welcome to episode 26 of Ringing the Blues. On this week's show, we hear from the Chairboys 90s nemesis, Roy McDonough. We check in on Uri in Mexico City, but first, there is still no football, but there's lots of discussions taking place about when the beautiful game can kick off once again. I caught up with Wickham chairman Rob Kuhig on Sunday the 19th of April to get his views on the latest. Rob, before all of this kicked off, people were saying, who on earth would buy a football club? What a time to buy a football club with all of this going on now in the world. Uh, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, but you sound like many of my business partners who say, Cooey, what the hell did you do? You buy a team and then they shut it down 10 days later. But, but yeah, we're doing fine. And look, as long as people keep everything in perspective, it'll work out. Uh, from our perspective, the most important thing for everybody is their health following the regulations, doing all that, and we'll get to the other side. We have, unfortunately, the benefit of having gone through something similar in that our entire community was devastated 15 years ago with Hurricane Katrina, uh, shut down for many, many months, had to build it back up, uh, and and it caused a, a cataclysmic sort of change in how we did business. So we're, we're equipped from an experienced background to deal with this. That's a really interesting point, Rob. So what can people expect? I mean, obviously things are changing here. Dates-wise, nothing's locked down. But the fact you've had something similar go on in your life, um, can you provide a bit of insight to how perhaps it might unfold? Sure. I think that people will go through various stages. They go through the idea of this is temporary and it'll get back to the way it was. They'll go back to a sort of anger stage. You know, why did this happen to me at this particular time? And then the vast majority of the people, those who who uh, I think will do best after this, are those who say it happened There's nothing I can do about the fact that it did take place. But the worst mistake I could make is try and put it back together the same exact way it used to be, because that's impossible. What you have to do in a situation like this is look at it. uh, You hate to use the word opportunity, but it is it is the cards that have been played, the opportunity to make things right, to build it better than it ever was. And uh, I think that the message of New Orleans is you can do it. Uh, it, it. It won't happen overnight, but a year from now, I suspect we'll be in a better place, except for the obvious personal tragedies that each of us will have sustained in, due to loss of relationships and the like. Football, financially, has been running the hot tap for, for many, many, many years. Are you saying this is a good opportunity, I suppose, to, to hit the reset button on finances, not just at club level, but across the board? Yeah, if, if they don't do it now, Phil, they'll never do it. I mean, how much you're, you're looking at, and I don't want to get into players because I think the players are unfairly roasted about how much money they make. Nobody has, to my knowledge, ever put a gun to an owner's head and said, you must pay a player X amount of money. 
they uh, they make a decision. Sometimes ego gets in the way. Sometimes uh, a decision on how you think you can best advance up the league structure or or the like gets advanced. But at the end of the day, you have to run these things like businesses. And uh, for too long, I think in English football, people have failed to recognize that if you don't run it as a sustainable business, it won't be. And you'll drift from owner to owner, new fund or new loan to new loan. And, and there won't be the stability that the fans deserve and want. And talking about players, you made the statement this week saying that Wickham Wanderers will pay their players for April um, because it was advised by the EFL, not a mandate. Because you're saying you're essentially delaying the pain by deferring payment. The EFL and the Players Association, I think, are trying to do the right thing by saying, look, why don't you defer 25% of the payment to the players, see if the players will agree to that. They, they, nobody said they had to. But from my mind, it's like going and getting another bank loan. They, it's only a deferral. You got to pay them back. And I know our players, and I know they can use the money now, and hopefully they will be able to have sustainable budgets in the future. Who else are we asking to defer? I can't go to my creditors and ask them, although some of them have been very kind and have allowed, you know, some, we, by coincidence, Phil, we, we took over, and as you probably know, we cleaned up most of the debt that was existent, and, and the remaining is, is basically vendor debt within a relatively short period of time that we have decided last month, Pete and I, we're just going to go ahead and continue to pay it off because we want the club to be financially sound and that means having your books clean. And I just didn't want another debt to a player uh, to to be on the books. It's it's maybe in the future we'll have to look at something like that. But for now, I'm not going to ask the players to sacrifice uh, when there's no need. Well, let's get back to the football then. Uh, football, Rick Parry wrote a letter to the fans of clubs in the EFL saying that he wasn't sure when football would be returning, but when it did, it was more than likely to be behind closed doors. As a club owner, as someone who believes so firmly in the, in the fan experience, how do you think that's going to play out for a club like Wickham? I, I, I don't understand it, to be very candid. I thought that it was following in form from the Premier League and the Championship League both of which have substantial television contracts and an ability to have their fans interrelate. You know I'm as big a supporter of the iFollow community as anybody, but it is not the same. And for us to go and play behind closed doors seems to me to be a mistake. Uh, Financially, it makes no sense whatsoever for a club like Wickham. Uh, the integrity of the game, somebody's going to have to persuade me that there is some integrity to the game to pick up after three months and then play in front of an empty house when you and I both know that if what you want to talk about is a similarity of experience, would we not be better off playing Oxford at home in front of a crowd uh, to make it a comparable existence to when we played at their place in front of their crowd? Football is 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 a sport in which the crowd plays a huge role in a game. You and I have sat in 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 the stands at at Wickham's Stadium when you can sense it when that visitor end is 
pulsating with their chants and songs. And our crowd starts to come back. And J.J. kicks one in from the corner. And everybody goes nuts. And then you can sense the team getting picked up. That symbiotic relationship between crowd and team makes English football unique. And to me, to play it behind closed doors essentially means you're going to have practice sessions with a little bit more on the line. I think a lot of fans would agree with you 100%, Rob, on the experience side of it as well. But if, because of the current situation, if it is the only possible way to finish the season, would you back it then if it was the only option on the table? Probably not. I mean, there's also the economics. Let me ask you this, Phil. If, if you, uh, under what circumstances do you think it's appropriate just to take money you're never going to get back and spend it? Would, would we, and, and this is the question I have not seen, and I don't want to be unfair to Rick Perry and the rest, but having, again, calling on my Katrina experience, what it seems to me is we're trying to put the genie back in the bottle for 2021. Would you not be better off saying, you know what, we're done. Let us pick up again in the middle of August when by almost every estimate, 90% of the problems will have been dealt with, will know how better to deal with crowds, how to deal with social distancing and the like. And let's have us a heck of a 2021 season from top to bottom with a sense of renewal. Right now, who are we playing these games for? That's what nobody seems to. People talk to me about the integrity of the game, the integrity of which game to whom. Is it for our fans to know that at the end of the season they had X record? Is it for the. It, 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 it doesn't make sense to me, and I'll be candid about that, but I, I'm not going to stand up on my high horse and say I'm not going to play, but it sure as heck makes no sense to me. Many Wiccan fans and Wiccan players fantastic season up to the point where it was suspended a lot of fans would be gagging to see what how far that that team could go under gareth this season are you saying that it'd be better maybe just to draw a line under it and start again in august from scratch to my mind it probably is and look nobody was more excited phil missy and i expected we would be spending she's still upset because we were going to be there all of april getting ready for the finish of this season, you know that April was going to be our biggest month ever in terms of fan attendance, in terms of revenues, in terms of potentiality of advancement and the like. But is is I don't understand how, how we finish the season. I stand to be proven wrong, but, uh, you know, when we talk about going out and playing, are we being fair to the players? We're going we're gonna to bring them back in after basically two and a half months of being on their own, put them into a training camp situation where they have to train for two, three, four weeks, and then they have to play 10 games in 44 days. Uh, you hear the 56 days, but the 56 includes two playoff games and a final. So if you back those out and you say that's going to take at least a week or 10 days, you're talking about 10 games in 44 days. That's a lot of football on players, and nobody wants to talk about what's the potential of injury, what's the potential of not having the sides. And, and let me just toss in one other thing that people don't want to talk about. Our contracts, now we're fortunate at Wickham that we have most of our guys on the contract, 
but for many teams in the league, contracts are over June 30th. What do they expect those players to do July 1st? And, and I come from a culture, and I think we share it with the British, that you can't unilaterally decide that a contract between you and me is going to go an extra day, much less an extra month. And on what terms? Do I pay you an extra month? Or are there going to be those owners in the league who say, no, I've already paid you for the season and you didn't play the season out, therefore I'm not paying you except for your deferred income. There are, It's a barrel of snakes. And then toss this into the equation. Yesterday, or, or I guess two days ago, we saw the government has decided to uh, maintain the furlough payments through the month of June. So any team that plays in June gives up those furlough payments now with no uh, uh, revenue offset for it. So lots of complications. You know me, I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm an optimistic guy. This is not the best of times, but we're going to get through it. And I'm not sure that there is one magical path. These, you know, the Kuig way and no other way. It's not like me telling you how to sell beer. It's there's going to be a path. We're going to get through it. We're all going. The good news is every team's going through it the exact same way. And we'll get to the other side. And I believe everything will be fair. It's interesting to see that because Dan Rowan, the BBC Sports Editor, leaked a copy of the letters that went out from the EFL to the chairman, the chief executives and the secretaries saying that they're still working to the schedule of players coming back to training mid-May with a view to games taking place again in June. Um, that's an interesting point you just made about the furloughing. Uh, the government have extended it for everybody for June, but you're saying that if football was to start again in June, that that entire month of furloughing for, for, for the players and the club staff, you wouldn't be able to claim any club. Correct. To use your phrase, a barrel of snakes is, uh, is, I think, pretty accurate. With Wickham, it's a good time, I suppose, for Wickham. Looking at higher up the division, the championship, who were well outstripping their, their wages, were outstripping their income. It's probably a better time, is it, for clubs to be smaller budget, more sustainably run? Is it going to play out in the next couple of seasons that these clubs may be rewarded by how they can get going again? I think so. But, but look, I think you can take it outside of the football realm. I don't care the size of the business. If you're operating at a loss, you're destined to fail. If you're operating at a break-even or above, you've got pretty good chance of success, and you've got a better chance of growing. Uh, I don't know, and I don't presume to know, the, the ins and outs of the Championship League, the Premier League, or even some of the teams in our league who have a different economic model that re- revolves around people putting in owners' money to sustain it while they go out and chase players. Uh, I start from the opposite side, and I was very open, as you recall, with the, with the trust. We believe that you build a budget that supports what you can afford to spend on players, and then you do the best you can. Now, I have always believed that we can significantly build our budget at Wickham. That's why when you see a guy like Neil Peters, and i got to give a little shout-out to Pete Kuig, who's still there, still trying to make it happen for us. Um, Their goal was to build our budget so that we could, in fact, have a bigger player budget uh, so we could compete more sustainably. Uh, But those big teams with big deficits, someday the piper comes calling, and you either have the money to pay it or you got to sell it to the next sucker. And uh, 
that to me is not a good model for football in general. Well, Rob, thank you very much for your time today. A little bird tells me it's a Kuhig birthday at some point this week. Is that right? <laughs> Philip, I have had so many of those that uh, I, I don't even count them or discuss them, but you are perhaps correct. Well, whenever it falls, happy birthday. And we hope to see you and Missy and everybody real soon. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Cheers. If you were following Wickham in the 1990s, then the name Roy McDonough will be a very familiar name to you. By pure chance, I spoke to the former Colchester player manager last summer after a switchboard error at the BBC put his call through to the studios at Three Counties. We had a good chat and I always thought that he'd maybe make a good guest for a Wickham podcast. And here we are. Roy lives out in Spain these days, so I kicked off the interview by asking him how he was. I'm fine, mate. Uh, a little bit bored. Done nothing for four weeks. Doing my editing. It is a terrible situation. I mean, let's talk about the current situation first because you're in Spain, so technically yeah. you're our future. You're a bit ahead of the curve of the UK. What's the situation like? Is it looking like it's going to be relaxed anytime soon? They sort of relaxed it, Phil, at the start of this week. We've been shut down now for probably nine on four weeks. And I mean, I've got dogs. I, I, can, I live in a farming village out the way of all the, the expats and the Brits and, and anyone can get near me. So I'm OK. I can take the dogs on a good walk in the sunshine. But anywhere along the coast that, that matters, there's roadblocks, uh, there's fines. They start at 300 euros up to six grand fill. And that's been going on for a month. You step out of line and you just bang to rights. And looking back, as much as I'm not so sure, I believe in what's totally gone on, but um, they've done it the right way this end. I look at England last night, God love them. They're all clapping the NHS. There's a thousand people on a bridge in London. I mean, what's going on? It's crazy, crazy times, Roy. Um, yeah. And hopefully we'll all be back to talking about football very, very soon. But what we have done in this time is look back and there's some great footballing times that we can look back on. None more so than the GM Vauxhall Conference battle between Colchester and Wickham Wanderers. Amazing times for non-league football and great times for you personally. And like we said in the intro, uh, you became the guys at Wickham. They love to hate you after those times. Uh, what do you remember about that that classic campaign, that first one, which saw Colchester pick Wickham to the title? You know what, talk about memories. It's like, you know, I'm 62 this year in October, so we are going back many years, but there are things that you'll never forget. Once I never had kids, I got married, one of the best days of my life, genuinely. Unfortunately, I've never had kids because I can't comprehend what that must be like. But the season in the conference when Martin O'Neill and his troops, to be fair, pushed us to the limit, with probably double the amount of players that we had, probably double the budget. But they're memories that will stay with you forever. And the beauty of it is, Phil, that it's a strange one. Martin O'Neill is now a multimillionaire. And trust me, I know ex-players who went there that worked under me players that work with him. Jesus Christ, for a bluffer, the bloke's made millions. <laughs> uh, it's still there, isn't it? It's still there. I mean, that yeah. the needle in those games. I remember I was a kid on the terrace in those games and it was a phenomenal season for Wickham. They picked themselves up the following yeah, yeah. season and then got back into the league. And I'll never forget this game, Roy, in, in Lee, what would have been Division 3. It was on my yeah. birthday. I think you scored twice. In a 5-2 win. A yeah. Phil, can I just go back to you? When I was at Colchester as a player manager, 
Uh, I was down to earth. I was no, I didn't think I was any sort of hero. I was a player's player and a manager. Uh, and then there was a lad worked for the Evening Gazette in Colchester. It was a Wickham fan. So, of course, a lot of the publicity and, and the stuff we were talking about when the running started to take, take place, where were level points and it was all happening, he was sending all the press reports and the links to Martin O'Neill and Wickham Wonders. So I suppose then Philip became pretty personal. Well, Martin was a manager. He was a great footballer, mate. Don't worry about that. He was a decent player. I'd call him a bit of a knicker and a flicker. Not a real stand-up, you know, like a, a Norman Hunter, God love him. Uh, a Roy Keane. He was a knicker and a flicker, but was decent. And I mentioned a few things about the players and how strong we were. Because we had a, a strong set of um, good old-fashioned footballers that would stand up to the, and, and be, stand up to be counted. If they could fight, they could fight. If they wanted to play, they could play. Whereas Martin's team were a little bit weakened with a great respect for them. We played them twice, three times that season. We beat them 3-0 at Lay Road and battered them. We won 2-1 at Adams Park when Scott Barrett, the goalkeeper, scored. And he, he took all the, the R&L of Eastfield. The glory was at the end of the game, uh, you know, the goalkeeper scored. Phil. Uh, if he was there, mate, we battered Wickham from start to finish, but we, we won it 2-1. And then, of course, that led to the running and the following season when they, they were going to win the conference next year without any shadow of a doubt. They were the best team by a mile. But the, the fact we played and went to Adams Park and beat them 5-2, it was, it was blinding. I think it broke my heart that day, boy. It was on my birthday. <laughs> uh, well, I, well, I, I apologise humbly, but listen, the, the beauty is we had two... Two little things that it got personal because of the press and bits and bobs. Who made it more personal was Alan Perry. I don't know if he's still a director, but I went to the game the Thursday night before the last game, the last game of the season on the Saturday. We played Barrow at home, and I think Wickham had to play Hyde or whatever it was. And we went to Dagenham. I took the whole first team squad. We all watched the game from behind the goal. We all had about five, six pints because I knew the lads could have a beer. We're playing on the Saturday, the last game, and we had to win it. If Wickham had won, we'd have, we'd have lost there. And I remember that uh, Wickham, Wickham won 5-1 at Dagenham. I had a couple of mates playing for Dagenham. So we're in the players' bar. We had four tables as you walk into the players' bar at Dagenham. On the left, then you walk to the bar. Wickham Wonders walked in, all the lads, bless them, Blazers, Tizel to Million Dogs. And we've got a table full of empty pint glasses. And the players looked at us, the Wickham lads, and said, what's going on here? And then Alan Parry walked in, and the bar, saw, it, it was like a Clint Eastwood movie. It went pretty silent. <laughs> so Alan walked across to me in front of all the players and the girls and the bar, and he said, uh, big fella, good result today. That went, They won 5-1. Of course it was a good result. He said, uh, ain't all over yet, is it? And I, I sort of took a deep breath. I said, Alan. And I looked over his shoulder, and all the bar were looking at me. I said, Alan, it ain't all over, mate. I'll tell you what it is. This Saturday at home, we played Barrow. It's fancy dress. The whole crowd are going to in fancy dress. What I'll do is I'll get all my players to play in fancy dress to give you half a chance. The fans' needle went back into the 80s and then this sort of resurfaced with it. It kind of made that on the pitch. I mean, the, the, the stuff on the pitch was fantastic from both clubs that season. But the yeah, whole story, it, it's just, I can't remember anything ever like it since. It all contributed, didn't it? All the stuff on the pitch, off the pitch. It just, con- you know, even now there's Wiccan fans of a certain age, me included, when they hear the words Colchester, that's it for them. Why is football like this? I mean, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? The memories we have and we'll still, yeah. we'll still talk about it 25 years later. You know, Phil, listen, 
1966 World Cup final. I, I was eight years of age. And I remember every kick and every tackle, every goal, the goal that wasn't a goal, blah de blah What sport does to you, if, if it's in your heart, and most men are, are pretty sport-orientated, Phil, it's in your heart, mate, and it's in your blood. You'll never forget it. The fact that me and Martin, I'll, I'll tell you another quick one if it's okay, Phil. Yeah. So on the back of, we did the double. We won 5-0 last game of the season. Uh, Wickham won, I think, 4-0 at home. But we won it on goal difference. Two things happened. I went on the Footballers Football Show on Sky, going back all them years, with Richard Keyes, Frank Stapleton, Andy Gray, Simon Stainwright, and me. And they asked me about doing the double and bits and bobs. And I just I told a few home truths, because I always would. And I said, we're the better team. Martin's team, good as, as good as they were, were never going to be as good as we were, because we were pros, blah, blah, blah. So then on the back of that, when we played the FA Trophy final at Wembley, Richard Keyes was the compare. Who was the, the number, the fellow doing the, the breakdown of the game? It's Martin O'Neill. So it led to another and another running. He called me arrogant. He called me a liar. Something else on live TV, which I thought was a bit harsh. I'm a player manager with 19 players. He had 32 players, six members of backroom staff, and couldn't win the league off the back of us. Fair play. But Phil, <laughs> I spent the afternoon at the... Uh, the Grand Hotel at Brighton with my ex-wife, Steve McGavin, because he got player of the year. I was manager of the year. We, we were the team of the year and everything else. And we'd been on the booze for about five, six hours that afternoon. Then, unbeknown to me, I've had to take the trophies down to the reception at the hotel where the room at the back, the function room, is going to do the presentation. As I went down the stairs, Phil, I stumbled a little bit at the bottom. I promise you, this is, this is without a word, but the top of the FA Trophy fell off the trophy at the bottom of the and spun round the corner and hit a foot at, at, at the reception. So as I went to pick it up, I looked. You never believe on my mother's life whose right foot it was. The top of the <laughs> it was Mr. O'Neill. What did you say? Phil, so, I'd had about 12 times by then. I, I said, Martin, I said, sorry, mate, do us a favour. Can you pass me that back, mate? I should have been a bit more respectful. I would have been. And he picked the top of the trophy up and he sort of, Passed it to me looking down his nose at me, and I'm thinking, I'd have been the same. Well, it was only 12 months for O'Neill to pick up those trophies himself. I've read somewhere, Roy, um, can you tell me if this is true or not? You would have, you perhaps nearly worked together with Martin O'Neill. Is that true? Yeah. I had a phone call, the irony. Am I right there, Phil? Did Martin manage Bristol Rovers? No, never managed Bristol Rovers, no. I think at the time it was New Year's Eve, and I was still player manager. I had a phone call at, I don't know. 11.30, it was Martin. And he asked me, I believe, and I'm pretty sure it was Bristol Rovers, there was talk of him going as manager, and the conversation was a bit wayward here, there and everywhere. I would always have to be with Martin. And I said, Martin, but I was a manager at the time, I was number one. Would I be his number two? In hindsight, Phil, Jesus Christ, would I have been his number two? Yes. I'd have been the same on the training ground, player to player, because Martin ain't great at that. He's not, he's coaching, I don't believe I've been told he's brilliant, but he's good man-to-man in the dressing room. I'd have been a perfect number two for him. So I said, Martin, I'll have to swerve it, mate, because I was a number one at the time. In hindsight, Jesus Christ, he went from Wickham to uh, Norwich, Leicester, uh, international manager. Seriously, I'd have been his number two for the rest of his career because I would have got on well. Genuinely, would have got on well. Well, and what Phil, could have been, eh, Roy? Again, the irony, but I think that's probably still the story of my career, to be honest. But, uh, 
you know, that, that's that's you just crack on. He's a, he is genuinely a multi-millionaire. I'm sure he is. He didn't do bad though as a manager, did he? He's a man manager, absolutely. And we've spoken to yeah. former Wigan players who confirmed that as well. But what a man manager! The trophies he picked up, international manager as well. I mean, Roy after Colchester, fantastic spell for you at Colchester. But it, it kind of that was the peak of your managerial career. What happened? Did, did the game sort of move on, or did you become disillusioned with the game? You know what, Phil? It could. If I actually genuinely talk about it, it could break your heart. But here's the irony again, the story of my career. I was a player manager. The summer when I saved the, the, the number two or the vice chairman of Colchester United, he was paying all the bills, 25 grand a month to keep the club afloat. We did the double. He took over when the chairman, James Bowes, left after the conference because James hadn't got a dollar. He told me when he got the job, he, he took it over and said, well, I haven't got a pound. But do what you can and see how we go. We did the double. Thank you very much. Uh, but the irony, I lasted another two years in the Football League. Uh, I scored that great goal at uh, Wickham when Alan Perry won't be arrested for inside a right when we won 5 2. <laughs> blah, blah. But the, the summer I got the sack, I'd agreed a couple of deals with two good players Ian Jury from Leighton Orient and Keith Day of Centrath. I was going to go back and play Centrath. Steve Whitney joined me from Ipswich Town, a drinking buddy of mine. We're going to be in the centre forward. We'd have been a handful. Uh, Phil, but I disagreed with the money man about the budget. Bear in mind, I'd saved him 200 grand in a shocking transfer for two Millwall players who I told him to his Facebook because that was me. We played Carl Oway, 500 league games, got the award from him on the pitch after the game. He couldn't look at me. I thought, I'm in a bit of bother here because we're negotiating the, the budget. I said to the lads, I'm in trouble here. I said, but I pulled the plug on the deal, the two Millwall lads. Because at the time, unbeknown to me, Phil, the Peter Hurd, who was the vice chairman, Reg Burr was Millwall chairman. They worked together in construction in London. So whether it was a tax relief or whatever it was, it was a movie deal. I said, Peter, when he said, Roy, would you like the two Millwall lads? We got beat 2 nil at Carlisle, they got in the class. I said, no, I said, no, no, no. I said, can I tell you, being honest with you, Peter, it was nice. I said, Peter, your mate is pulling your pants down. They'll both be free transfers in five weeks. I said, so no, I don't want the two Millwall lads. Guess what? I get sacked 10 days later and the two Millwall boys, five weeks later, we both free transfers. So the irony, Phil, of, of telling the truth and saving the money man from a shocking transfer deal, I was sacked for his words, Roy Roy. Your biggest problem, mate, you're too honest. What do you make of it now? I mean, as a manager, we'd have to ask you about as a player as well, but it's an unrecognisable game now, isn't it, from, from when you played? You know, I've said it the other day, I spoke to a Millwall lad who did a podcast. We talked about Erlock, me, and Bix and Bob's Phil. In our day, I'd put my number nine shirt on number 10 and walk on the pitch. I'd look down the pitch. You knew who they were playing against. The two centre-halves, 6-1, 6-2, 13 14 I've got an hour and a half of being booted up in the air from behind by two big bustling centre-backs. If they physically dominate me, I've had a shocking game. So I'd walk on the pitch thinking, right, see the pair of you two, you can sneak up behind me, but you're going to have it because I'm going to stand in my corner. It was called, uh, what's the word, Phil? Physical, asking questions of the player's character, his physicality, the whole thing. They talk about physicality now. My missus could wipe out half the front players in the Premier League. She's only like eight, nine stone. Because, Phil, there was no contact. So where are the physical battles between an Alan Shearer and a Tony Adams? a Mark Hughes, a Roy Keane against, I don't know, Patrick Vieira and Martin Keown. I think the fans get shortchanged because it, 
honest. Is the game honest? Between me and you, Phil, I think it's shocking. It upsets me too much. You got 22 red cards back back then. I mean, imagine what you'd get now. You feel I wouldn't get through the warm-up, mate. If I looked <laughs> the wrong way, I'd be good night, God bless. But, Phil, but genuinely, where, where it came from, I'm not sure. My dad was a good sportsman. If someone looked at me and took me on physically, I'll take it and I'm coming back at you. And what I did, Phil, at 22... But I played nine on 20 odd. I feel it was one season. And looking back at the way I played, I was centre forward, centre half. I played in goal when the keeper got injured. I was full back. I played central midfield for Bobby Moore. I played every position on the pitch as a pro field. So I do believe I often knew the game. But physically, you take me on, you take what's coming. Simple as that. It's interesting what you say about the fans getting shortchanged. Since we've had no football this last month, a lot of us have been watching old games back and we watched the Wickham Wanderers semi-final against Liverpool when Laurie Sanchez was the manager. Yeah, and there yeah. was there were some tremendous tackles in that in that cup run from Wickham players. And I was looking at them, I was thinking, well, they'd be straight reds today. And it does take yeah. a certain intensity out of the game, doesn't it? It, it takes the honesty. Here's the word, mate, the honesty. Who was the right back? He got sent off against us as well. Jason right. Cousins. No, Jason Cousins was one thinking... Keith Ryan played midfield, didn't he? He did, yeah. yeah. Mate, he could go up and down the line, he could cross it, had a good right foot, but if there's someone there to be tackled, he'd tackle him and some. Uh, You know what? My sort of player, really, the physical battlefield was great to watch. My brothers used to say to me, Roy, we could be Rochdale away, Hartlepool said, Roy, but you know what? As bad as it might have been, it was a great game to watch because there was always going to be a fight because if it was going a bit wrong for you and you say, you'd have a scrap with somebody. And he said it, it, it was exciting. I think it was a better game back then um, in terms of what you say, being there live on the terrace for the fans. I think it's yeah. become overly sanitised to, to a certain degree. But going back to the to the current day, Roy, I mean, there is no football at all. What would you like to see happen? You know, it's no one can please everyone in this scenario. How do you think the season will be finished, if it will be finished at all? The problem is, Phil, next summer now, it's the European Championships. Now, that's a massive money spinner for FIFA, UEFA, whoever the party is for Europe. It's a massive money spinner. They cannot uh, compromise that again. So what they'll do with the Premier League, the Football League, it, I genuinely feel I, I really don't know. But guess what? What will happen is the money will, be, the money will look after itself because that's what the game's all about now. It's not the honesty of, of players playing for the, the badge, the team and the fans. It's all about the dollar. And rest assured, whatever happens, however they, they sort it out this season, the dollar will come out on top. Follow the money. That's what they always say, don't they? So, yeah. Well, Roy, it's been great to speak to you. It's brought memories flooding back for me, and I'm sure it will for other Wiccan fans. Yeah. Listen, it probably gave you all sorts of abuse, me included back then. But like I say, they were great days in the late 90s. And that rivalry was something I will never, ever forget. I don't think Martin O'Neill ever forgot it. I think he spoke about yeah. it when he was manager of Celtic. And he said when they played Rangers, he was like, don't worry about me and the old firm. If it's anything like Wickham Colchester, I'll be fine. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And Phil, but the beauty is, but in those days, managers would take each other on. They'd get the players to take each other on face-to-face and make the best man and the best team win. But it was also an honest physical battle. Uh, and then obviously the battle of the managers. And that, that was what I think the money was worth paying for. But unfortunately, that ain't going to happen anymore. Oh, I knew what I was going to ask you as well. I mean, I'm, I remember going to Leia Road and, OK, it was a bit of a dump. But at the new Colchester <laughs> Stadium, I think I'm, I might be old-fashioned here, but I think I prefer Leia Road to the new one. The new one's a bit bit soulless, isn't it? That's the, the, the magic word. You drive by it on the A12 and you look at it. It's soulless. 
it's not even it's it's worse than that, and it's what a crying shame because the club progressed to a level, but again, Phil, go back to World well Roy mid nineties, I left them with average crowds of four thousand six hundred. They were record crowds. That many people in Lair Road, it was like a fortress in a way, as bad as it was. But it was a great atmosphere to play in. I'm telling you, Adams Park has got something about it because it's not too big. You've hit the nail on the head. The stadium's soulless. The players are soulless. The fans are. They're missing the football because you, you would because that's what a lot of people live for during their working period, in their life, whatever. But guess what? Soulless, the modern-day game, ain't far away. Wickham Colchester, do you, do you still follow the results, especially Colchester? You know what, I always, I mean, last year I spoke to Ron Martin about the South End job and I was in a bit of a mix, I think, and there would be a couple of jobs I'd take back. I actually thought about, Wickham Wonders came up a couple of times, I think, I wonder if they'd take you there on the back of what had gone on. And being perhaps, I didn't quite follow it up, Phil. But of course, I follow all the teams, Birmingham City, Villa as a kid, South End, Colchester, uh, of course I do I look at uh, believe it or not I always check the Wickham score because they've done okay the last couple of years and I like the manager they've had because listen old school liked him said it as it is stood there no ears and graces I thought yeah I, I, can, I like him he was okay I'll, tell, I'll be, honest, I'll be honest with you, Roy. If you were to be made manager of Wickham you'd have to make a pretty good start I think otherwise I think the fans might be after you <laughs> You know what that would be a laugh though that, that wouldn't bother me in the slightest Phil trust me <laughs> Well, Roy, great to speak to you. Cheers for your time today and uh, all the best out in Spain. No, it's a pleasure, mate. Anytime, sure. No football means there's been no results for Al Uri to read out from Mexico City. So I thought I'd give him a call to find out how he is. My amigo Phil, I miss you so much. I thought I was being laid off by the Ringing the Blues Incorporated company, but uh, fortunately we have a new call and hey, it's been a month already or or, or more than that. I have called Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's over a month since Wickham played. And I think just to give us a flavour, today is Good Friday. Wickham were meant to be playing away at Southend United. Just give us that scoreline. Make up a scoreline between Southend and Wickham, just so we can get to hear just that one result. Southend United 1, Wickham Wanderers 2. Yes. We won away again. And uh, it seems that we're heading up to promotion on 2020. Great year. <laughs> what, what was the landscape in, in Christmas 2019? Like we were heading for promotion. The, the landscape was, you know, shining ahead and we were so optimistic. Well, the optimism remains here, but no one knows whether the season's going to be played out or not um, or what's going to happen. But we remain optimistic as ever. But yeah, no football is tough for the English. And I know it's also tough for the Mexicans as well, because it's very similar psyche in Mexico City that football is almost like a religion. What's going on in Mexico without the football? Wow, plenty of things. First of all, as, as uh, we, we can see the power of football in, in our lives and the gra- gravitation it has on our attention and how football eclipses everything else. So all the bandwidth dedicated to football on week on work days and on weekend, now we're free from football and being the devil's advocate on this side and, and we can discover our lives without football. It's like uh, we're going to the surface and discovering there's a world outside where you can cook, 
where you can be gentle to <laughs> to each other. You know, it's it's like uh, we were blinded by football. Don't you agree? <laughs> I do. I mean, I've never cooked so much nice food in my life. I do really, really miss the football, though. I have to say the routine, the seeing people, the excitement. I do feel that there's a large part of my life missing. And and we've mm -hmm. been searching the world. I think that in Belarus, there was some football happening and we were able to see some Belarusian football for a few games. But I think that's even stopped now. So we're back now to looking through the past games from, from many years ago and trying to remember what it was like back in the 90s and, and watching old games, which is great. But we always know what the result's going to be. So the, uh, the edge is missing. Yeah, right. Like somewhere in Central America, there's also a league going on. I guess it's Nicaragua. And... <laughs> It's making the headlines. And there's a Mexican player in Nicaragua, which is becoming the Raul Jimenez, the top scorer for that Nicaragua league. So he's breaking the news all the time, which is weird. Uh, but yeah, it's the same landscape in, in uh, regarding entertainment. So with no football ahead, with no fresh news, we're looking to the huge accumulation of past anecdotes on football. The highlight uh, on this week weeks has been... Well, Ignacio Treyes, Nacho Treyes, he died at 103 years old, 103 años, Nacho Treyes. Wow. He was a football player, he was a, tra uh, a, a, a the trainer for the national team in the World Cups 1962 and 1966. So the TV channel Aficionados, which I make voiceover, would you like to hear how I make the Aficionados voiceover talents? Let's, let's do this. Come on. Homenaje a Nacho Treyes. Aficionado celebra la muerte de Nacho Treyes y lo recuerda con la retransmisión del partido Inglaterra contra México del Mundial 1966. Homenaje a Nacho Treyes en Aficionados. Announcer <laughs> on, on my on my normal work life. So Na yeah, Nacho Treyes died, and they rerun again. They played again. The, the, the matches from the Mexico national, national team on 1962 and 1966. And what a, that was such an amazing, miraculous thing to watch. Football in black and white, with no advertisings, with no repetition. And the, the commentator, uh, this guy, well, this man was Fernando Marcos. He came from the early radio days. Who, so he was very disciplined, descriptive. He was even poetic, I might say, and, and very respectful. So you can't listen to a football match uh, commentated in that elaborate way. So uh, Nacho Trees was a trainee, uh, uh, La Tota Carvajal, uh, which was the goalkeeper for Mexico. Maybe you've seen him in the history books because he is one of the few players that has played five World Cups along with Lothar Mateus and uh, Rafael Marquez, also from Mexico. So. For the first time in my life, I could see how La Tota Carvajal was as a goalkeeper. He played in both World Cups and he was good. He was very safe. I was able to see England versus Mexico on, in 66, played at Wembley. The result was England 2, Mexico nil. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we've been, we've been enjoying past football results here. But I think as a nation, we may need to re-watch the World Cup of 1966. I can't remember who won that year, but I think it was a good tournament. 
English black humor, as always. <laughs> it, it's the same in, in World Cup 1962. There was this match, uh, Mexico versus Spain. It was uh, crucial for Mexico to, to win. Otherwise, they would have, they, they, was, they were out of the, of the World Cup. And it was such a tragic game because Mexico dominated the match. Uh, Spain had a, a, a great squad with uh, Puskas and Paco Gento and some other big names in, in Spanish football history. And Mexico was very competitive. And you could see Mexico had the initiative. Mexico had great plays. And the, the score for most of the match was nil-nil. And we all knew that at minute 90, Mexico had a corner kick, on uh, offensive corner kick. They lost the ball. There was a counteract attack by Paco Gento on the left side of the, of the, of the pitch. And he put a cross and Spain won, Mexico nil. It was a tragedy. So it was the anticipated, you, as, a, as a spectator, you knew how the match was going to end, but it was incredible to watch it for the first time, like how actually that happened. And tragedy because Mexico could have won that game and missed, like three minutes before that, Mexico had an opportunity clear in front of the goal. So tragedy. And, and I was with my, you know, on my WhatsApp groups, uh, commenting football. We were all commenting the match in real time. So it was it was a strange phenomenon. I think this is why I've always felt so at home in Mexico, because the thing that unites England and Mexico is the tragic element of our national football teams, because especially in our lifetimes, we seem to be very similar in the fact that we're never too far away from a tragic result. <laughs> Yeah, in Spanish it said it is Jamerito, which translates as almost there. <laughs> almost there. <laughs> and <laughs> we were, of course, my, the first World World Cup uh, with Mexico playing was uh, the first one I saw, and I can't remember, was Mexico 1986. We lost on quarterfinals to Germany on penalty kicks. One goal, one legitimate goal uh, by El Abuelo Cruz was uh, voided, and it's still remembered as a... As, you know, as a tragedy. But yeah, I thought the Jamerito was invented in 86. And then to go back to 1962 and see that the Jamerito was uh, happening there. And and also another strange thing to, to, to witness was a player. Well, this is an anecdote, uh, maybe difficult to translate or explain, but maybe you will get it. Okay, so when Mexicans go abroad and they feel homesickness sickness because of the food, we call that the phenomena of uh, the, the Jamaican illness. So the Jamaican illness is uh, a Mexican underperforming abroad because they miss the tacos al pastor and they miss guacamole and they miss tequila and everything. And that <laughs> happened to me when I lived in, in London in 92 and 96. I had the Jamaican syndrome. So... Jamaicón Villegas was a player in 1958, was it, in Sweden, perhaps? And uh, they asked Jamaicón, why, why are you playing so bad? Because you're such a good football player. And, they, and he, he argued that, that he was missing Mexican food and he was so far from home. So again, I was able to see Jamaicón Villegas on the pitch, like meet <laughs> the person. And, and he wasn't bad at all. He just had this syndrome for Mexican food. <laughs> well. I'm very much at home now, and I'm missing Mexican food a lot, which maybe explains my poor performance at work. <laughs> Uri, it's been amazing to have a chat with you and hear a bit more about you rather than just the results. We love your results. It brings League One to life. 
And uh, we hope to hear you reading results again very, very soon. Or maybe it'll be next season. We just don't know what's going to happen. But And sooner or later, we will go back to the pitch and to the microphone to make these announcements and go back into character because I think on this interview, I've lost the character. Like I'm a Lucha Libre wrestler taking off the mask and speaking normally. <laughs> well, if, if you can say that my accent, like Mexican accent is normal, maybe it sounds fun for you even if I try to speak normal. I don't have to pretend I'm a Mexicano and speak like this, you know, I can go into character and give the results of League <laughs> One. <laughs> and it's a pleasure to ring the blues from Mexico City. We should do this more often with a glass of tequila. Great to hear from Uri. And remember, pick up the phone to one of your mates during these tough times just to check in on them and see how they're doing. Right, that's it for this episode, but the Ringing the Blues Lockdown Quiz returns on Saturday the 25th of April at 8pm live on YouTube. Big thanks to Rob Kuhig, Roy McDonough and Uri. Take care and hopefully see you soon.